Well, good morning. How's everybody doing? Good. Excited to be here? I know I am. <laughs> All righty. Well, yeah, Wednesday nights, the class that we're doing on the Holy Spirit, it's turned out to be a really awesome study. Um, so much information. I really believe that uh, the Holy Spirit is probably one of the most understood uh, persons in the church, especially in the Godhead. A lot of us have some ideas about what the Holy Spirit is, but we've learned so much in two weeks. I just want to encourage you, if you uh, are looking for something to do on Wednesday, please come by starting at 7 p.m. We uh, go through some, some discussion and some teaching, and we can ask some questions. It's great. So again, just want to extend that invitation to all of you. And we're going to jump right in here um, in what I believe to be the third and final week of our series. It's been entitled, Now What? The title of today's sermon is, uh, We're All in This Together. We're in this together. First week we discussed, uh, took a look at chap- uh, Joshua chapter 1 and looking at the transition of Moses into Joshua, trying to answer the question of, you know, now what do we do? It was a big transition for them. We're in a transition ourselves, coming off of 50 years as a church and 32 years under the wonderful leadership of Pastors Ed and Karen. So we're answering this question now, what do we do? And in that first week, and looking at the transition from Moses to Joshua, in chapter 1, God speaks to, to Joshua and tells him some things. And we looked at two areas. What do we need to know and what do we need to do? I just want to review the first week and last week and then jump in. So first of all, what do we need to know? Well, that Jesus is the head of this church. He's the head of the church. God has positioned. It's God's church. He's put Jesus as the head of it. We're here to steward and be a part of it. We don't own it. We're a steward of it. We're a part of the church. Number two, that God is with us and God has gone before us and prepared the way. He's never left us. And like, like number three, he's not going to leave us. He's not going to forsake us. In fact, he's gone ahead of us. He's seen everything that we're going to encounter. And he's given us everything that we will need to be successful as we go forward in the future. Second area is what do we need to do? Well, according to that passage, number one, we want to be strong and of good courage. And our strength and our courage comes not from ourselves, but in who God is and who we know him to be and what he's done for us. Number two is we're going to speak God's word. We're going to be a people that speaks life and not death. And when we don't know what to say, we're going to go to God's word and figure out what he says. And then that's what we're going to choose to say. And after that, then we're going to do God's word. All that he commands us, that's what we're going to do. We cannot fail if we speak his word and we do his word. In fact, the other day, I was at a coffee shop doing some sermon preparation. And I was sitting there looking out the window and I was just kind of, you know, having some fear about the future. Not what we're supposed to do. And about doing the things that God has called us to do. And I said, God, what if people get upset about us doing your word? And I just felt like he spoke to me and said, Josh, you speak my word and you do my word, but you do not defend my word. I'm the defender. And we can't go wrong. We can clap for that. That it's his word. It's not ours. And he takes full responsibility for it. So, and then the last one was, we're, gonna, we're not going to fear. We're not going to be afraid or dismayed, but we're going to face the future with faith. And we're going to do that by speaking his word and doing his word. And then last week, we took a look at uh, probably the greatest transition in all of the Bible when Jesus is getting ready to ascend into heaven and he speaks to his disciples and roughly about 500 people and he transitioned the leadership to all of his followers as he goes back into heaven. And it's a very familiar passage of scripture that we call the Great Commission. And in that passage, we find that he says, go into all the world and preach the gospel, make disciples of all nations, teach them everything that I've taught you, and I want you to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. So we said, what are we going to do? Well, number one, we're going to reach our city, our country, and our world. And we're going to do that by going. We're going to do that by making disciples, by teaching all that Jesus taught us, by preaching the gospel. 
and by baptizing all the people who come to know who Jesus Christ is. We're going to be about people because God's about people. And so this week, what I want to do is, is I want to talk about a, a subject that comes out of John chapter 17, verses 20 to 23. If you brought your Bibles, you can flip there. If not, it's okay. We're going we're gonna to have it up on the screens here. But in this chapter, John chapter 17, it's a chapter that is just full of prayer. Jesus prays, and he prays three prayers. He prays for himself at the beginning, for his disciples in the middle, and the last prayer is for believers. Not just the believers that were there when he wrote it, but for all who would believe. And these, in these chapters from John, about John 13 to, to where we're at, they happen in a relatively short amount of time. Starting in, about, in John 13, Jesus uh, begins a discussion with his disciples, and he's telling them that he's going to leave, and that the Holy Spirit is going to come. And they talk through that and have discussions, and then comes John chapter 17, Jesus' prayer. And right after this chapter, the next three chapters, 18, 19, and 20, Jesus is arrested, crucified, and resurrected. Bam, bam, bam. And so this, this prayer comes right before Jesus is going to be arrested and to accomplish that which he came to accomplish, to make full payment for the power and the bondage of sin, to set all of us free, to set the world free. And this prayer that he prays is a prayer of unity. And so I want to read that, and then we'll jump in. So John chapter 17, verse 20. Jesus says, I do not pray for these alone, referring to his disciples, but for those who will believe in me through their word, those who will confess that I'm Jesus, that they may all be in one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them, you in me that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this wonderful day to come here and to learn more about your Son, Jesus Christ. We just ask you, Holy Spirit, that as we go through this, that you would open our ears and our hearts and our minds to receive from you, and that the word that is spoken today, your word, would take root in us and begin to produce fruit, not only within these walls, but outside these walls, and would go to our city, our country, and our world. So we ask you, Holy Spirit, to just be present with us this morning, and help me preach this message. In your name we pray. Everybody said, Amen. Amen. I want you to I want you to look at your neighbor, the one you like the most, and I want you to say we're in this together. We're in this together. You know, hopefully the person you didn't choose isn't offended, but um, you know, I, I, I really like history. I've always enjoyed history. I liked it in school, I got really good grades in it, it just kinda came easy to me and but there's an era of history that I enjoy the most. I enjoy reading firsthand accounts about this era. I, I just, for some reason, am very drawn to it. And that's the era that we get our greatest generation from, which is the World, World War II era. And one of the reasons I think that it's so, um, so personal to me is I have a great-grandmother who's in her 90s who was part of that generation. In fact, she was a Rosie Riveter. Anybody remember that, what that term, Rosie Riveter? She, she worked in factories. One, I think, was a bullet factory, and one was something to do with bombs. I may be wrong, but anyway, she helped support the war effort. And I asked her one time, I said, I said Granny, that's what we call her. I said, what did you do during the war? She said, I worked all day and I danced all night. <laughs> she probably wouldn't be happy if I told you that. But that, was before, that was before she came to know who Jesus was. <laughs> but she said, yeah, I worked all day and I danced all night. In fact, she still has ration cards from the war. And one of the things that, uh, that really impacts me and strikes me about World War II era, that generation, was there was such a spirit of unity, not only in this country, but around the world. 
But in this country specifically, people came together for the common good. They sacrificed the ration cards. If you don't know what those are, they could only buy certain amounts of sugar and flour and eggs at the grocery store because they were taking those and sending them over to Europe and the Pacific to support the soldiers that were over there. Car companies shut down production of vehicles to make vehicles for the war effort. I think it was an unprecedented time of unity in the world. The world hasn't seen it since, and uh, I don't know if they ever really saw it before. There were a lot of countries that came together and united to defeat the enemy, which was the Axis powers, Germany, Italy, and Japan. All these countries that you would not think would come together, and today some of them just don't like each other, came together to defeat an enemy for the common good. And unity was at the, at the center of that. I think and I believe that unity is one of the most powerful elements that we are not fully utilizing today. I would say that, I call this, that unity is the linchpin. How many people know what a linchpin is? A linchpin is very small, but it, it's, a, it's a pin that keeps the wheel in place on an axle. If you don't have a linchpin on your vehicle, the wheel's not going to be on the axle, then your vehicle isn't worth very much because it protects the unity of the structure. A vehicle without wheels, regardless of how high performance the engine is and how great the car looks and how many features, if it's loaded or not, is no good without wheels because it can't perform its function. It cannot do what it was put on earth to do. It's just a hunk of metal with a lot of neat stuff that doesn't work. And unity is the prayer that Jesus prayed right before he went to the cross. And the prayer that he prayed for all believers for all time was a prayer of unity. I believe that the church is, is, needs unity. Not just our church, but globally we need to be in unity. But the unity that Jesus prays for here is different than the unity that we saw in World War II. The unity that Jesus prays for here is, is perfect unity. This is really the, one of the prayers that Jesus prayed that hasn't fully been answered yet. Of course, Jesus prayed it. There's nothing wrong with it. But I want to take a look at this prayer today, and I just want to, for the next few minutes, just share some thoughts that jumped out at me while I was reading this passage this week over and over again. I want to look at the prayer how we accomplish that prayer, and what are the implications of that prayer for, for you and for me. So number one, let's just go right back. It's, you can really divide these verses in two, 20 and 21, 22 and 23. So Jesus' prayer, he says this. We already read it. But I do not pray for these alone, but for those who will believe in me with their, through their word. That, that's an important word. That they may all be one, is what he says. That they may all be one. All who believe and all who will believe. And that word one, it numerically means one. But the implication when Jesus says the word one, which is something that we really need to understand because he follows it with the word as. He says, as you and I are one, talking about God. This word one, can you go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible in Genesis when the Bible says, let, let us make man in our image. Let us. God doesn't say let me. He says, let us. Who's he referring to? He's referring to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They're three persons, but they're one. It still is hard for me to understand. It kind of blows my mind. So when Jesus says, let them be one as you and I, Father, are one, what he's saying is, is the perfect unity that exists in the Godhead. That's the unity that I'm praying for. That is a unity that we are incapable as human beings of producing. We cannot reach down inside of ourselves and say, all right, I'm going to exercise the unity that Jesus is praying for on my own accord. It's not possible. 
which is really kind of interesting. And you say, well, then why would Jesus pray that prayer if I am incapable of producing it? That perfect picture of harmony and unity. You know, not all, like I said before, not all unity equals the kind of unity here. We've seen uh, people try to attempt to create unity. They've brought the most talented individuals together in a group. Let's take sports teams. There are some sports teams out there that have amazingly talented individuals that by on paper, they should be the champions. But they come together, and if they don't gel together as a team, if there's not unity there, they're not successful because they're good in their own right, but they're not good together as a collective unit. And in our culture, in American culture, it's very individualistic. We kind of have this belief and this thought that I can make a life for myself. I can pull myself up out of the gutter. I can pull myself up by my bootstraps. I can be successful. I don't need you. But that's a fallacy. Success is not created in a vacuum. Success requires people. We are all beneficiaries of somebody else doing something for us or we're riding on the coattails, so to speak, of somebody else's accomplishments. It's more collective. And Jesus is praying not an individual prayer, but a collective prayer. So why does he pray this prayer? He answers it really in two parts. First answer comes in, chapter, in verse 21. He says, so that, that the world may believe, God, that you sent me. That the world. So what's the world? The word world here is the same word used in John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Now the world, it does mean the cosmos, the universe, the physical things that we see. But in this case here, there's a deeper meaning. The same meaning that God had when he used it in in John chapter 3, verse 16. It means this. The ungodly multitude, the whole mass of men, alienated from God and hostile to the cause of Christ. He's talking about humanity. All the people that don't know who I am, this is what Jesus said, the world. People who have not yet chosen to believe in me, have not yet responded to the faith that I give them, that I am the Savior of the world, that I am the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's why I want you to be in unity so they may believe that God sent me. And when he says God sent me, it's not like sending a piece of mail to someone. The word sent has this idea of being commissioned, being established, being set in place for a specific purpose. So what he's saying is they would believe for the purpose in which God sent me. They would believe. And believe is a strong word, but it means to be persuaded. It literally means to be persuaded, convinced by an inner and higher prerogative of law of the soul. That's a pretty lofty definition. Basically, it means to be convinced by something bigger than yourself. And that's God. Persuading and convincing people through faith of who Jesus is to believe in his son and why he sent him. That's the unity and the reason why he's, he's, he's praying this prayer is for the benefit, not of those who do believe, but for those who, who don't believe. Those of us who believe currently, we benefited from somebody, somewhere, or some group of people being in some form of unity so the world would know, would believe. And then he goes into 22, and this is where I believe the empowerment to be in this type of unity comes from. He says this, And the glory which you gave me, saying, God, the glory which you gave me is your son. I have given them that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. So he says the glory. Now the word glory is an interesting word. When I hear the word glory, a lot of images pop up in my mind. I think of something glowing. I think of something that I fully can't understand. It, stand, it seems kind of elusive and, and, and out there a little bit. 
I had to do some study on what, what this word glory means in this context to really get an idea of what he's talking about to understand how that helps us be in one. The word glory, when you look it up, it means a divine heavenly radiance, the majesty or, or loftiness of God. But here's the kicker right here, the one that we need to understand. The being of God is what it said. The being of God. And Jesus said, the, your, your divine nature that you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one. I and you, you and me. And they'd be one with us. So we are united as a people who believe in Jesus Christ because of the nature of God that's on the inside of us. So the prayer is, I want you to be in this perfect unity. That's my desire. But I not only desire that for you, I'm going to do everything it requires to produce that in you so that you can be in unity. Our unity not, doesn't necessarily come from, or let me say this, unity does not originate with what we do. Our unity originates with what Jesus has done and who we are because of what he's done on the inside of us. So to really be in unity, we have to look to and appeal to the Spirit of God on the inside of us because that is what unites us. We are all united as those who believe in Jesus Christ. We are united because of what he's done and through his finished work. We're a united body of believers because of the body of Christ, not because of what we do. And he says not only this, not only do I give you this so that you may be one, but there's, a, there's also three other things. I want you to be made perfect in one, he says, so that you may be made perfect in one. That word perfect is a big word. It automatically probably conjures up this idea of absolute perfection, nothing wrong, nothing errant about it. But it doesn't really mean perfection in that way. It means completeness. It means soundness. It means fulfillment. And I believe it's speaking even to when God originally created Adam and Eve and they were complete and they were fulfilled, and they were sound. It was a, so to speak, perfect creation because God did it. That you may be completely fulfilled and sound as you are one together with me and with God the Father. Again, kind of speaking to us today about the individualistic society that we live in, we just think if we can make enough money, we can get the right job, we can have the right things, then we'll be complete. Then we'll be fulfilled. But this idea of completeness and fulfillment comes as a collective group of people. It comes as we participate within the body of Christ. Well, you will never really be fulfilled in your life if you have a bunch of stuff. The only full level of fulfillment comes and it begins with a relationship with Jesus Christ and then engaging in the community of believers, the family of God, and using the gifts and talents that he's given you as we build up one another in our most holy faith, right? We're supposed to do this together. Remember, we're in this together. It's not lone survivor. It's not all of us on our own trying to do something different. It's us coming together to do something. So he says that, be made perfect in one. And then he says, so that the world may know. He switches from believe to know. And you may say, well, that's probably the same word, but just used different ways. So he didn't want to be repetitive, right? No, it's two different words. And the word know here is, is even stronger than the word believe. Now, in our, in our language, if we say we believe something or I know something, it, sometimes belief seems to be a little stronger than knowing. Oh, I believe, you know, believe. We do a lot of things because we believe. But the, the word know here is really strong. In fact, the word know is the same word that's used for when a man and woman get married and they come together in sexual union to know each other. It's deep and it's intimate. 
Human beings can know a lot about each other, can learn to love each other based on what they know about each other, but when they come together in a sexual union, there is a knowing that takes place because God ordained sex for that purpose that is unparalleled with anything else. Whether you do it in the confines of marriage or outside the confines of marriage, there is some level of knowing going on. So Jesus is using this word, this very strong word, so that we might understand to the depth of knowing what he's saying. He's not saying, I I want them to know about me. I want them to know my lofty position. I want them to know that I was a historical figure. No. There's some people that believe that Jesus existed on the earth, right? Because history points to that. But they don't know Jesus. Jesus is saying, I want them to know me. And God, I want them to know you. And the only way to know you, Father, is through me. I want them to know that I gave my life for them. I want them to know why I came to this earth, why you sent me here, why you commissioned me and set me on this earth for this purpose, to do this one thing, to restore relationship, to make the final and forever payment for sin. I want the world to know. He's not talking to believers. Remember this. He is praying this prayer for the benefit of those people who do not yet know him, that they would Know, and not just know me, not just know that God sent me, but they would know, Father, that you love them as much as you love me. That's what he says. So the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. That's big. It's not just saying, I want them to know about me. I just want them to know, God, that you love them. No, not that you love them, but that you love them as much as you love me. How many of you have a child or a grandchild in the room? Right? How many of you love somebody else outside of your family as much as you love that child or your grandchild? It probably just doesn't happen, right? I love my son in a different way than I love my wife. I learned to love my wife. I grew to love my wife. I love my son from the moment that I laid eyes on him. There wasn't any learning about it, right? It was just, bam, I love you. I don't know why. And I love you more the next day than I did the first day. It's just this effervescing growing thing on the inside of us where you love your children and you just don't know why. And that's what God is saying. Jesus is saying, I want them to know that as much as you as a father have loved your only son, that's how much you love the world. That's how much God loves the unbeliever. That's how much God loves you and I this morning as much as he loves Jesus. And you'll never understand how much God loves you until you understand how much God loves his son. As much as you love your son or your daughter or your grandchild, whatever it may be, take that, multiply it as much as you can in your mind, and that is beginning to scratch the surface of how much God loves you. That's big. And that's why Jesus is saying, I want them to be in unity. God, as you and I are one, the church, the believers, they've got to be in one because there are so many people who are on earth They currently don't know who Jesus is, and they've got to know, and they've got to know. So that leads us to this. This has been a pretty good discussion so far, right, where we can learn about what Jesus is saying. Now comes the time when it it, it points to responsibility. See, there's a part of the message where you listen, and you take in, and it soaks in, but the other part of the message is called responsibility, where you have to take personal responsibility for what's being taught. The Bible always leads you to that. You'll first learn it. You'll observe it, it'll get in you, and then it'll start to produce fruit. So you've got to start taking responsibility for what's going on. And that's what here, this is, really, this is really a call to action, right? Because here's the thing, God is not going to force us to be in unity. 
God doesn't do that. He's not going to force us all to say, all right, you're unified, now go. We have to choose to participate in that. The divine nature of God is on the inside of us. It's right there. Everything we need to live in this level of unity is right here on the inside, but I've got to choose to participate with it. I've got to choose to allow it by the faith that God has given me to come out of me. God isn't going to reach in and just yank it out, like I said, and be forced to be in unity. We've got to choose to participate that. But you know what? If I didn't know that the power to be in unity was on the inside of me, I would not have known what to appeal to. I cannot exercise something that I do not have a, a cognitive category for, right? Bible says that my people perish for a lack of knowledge. So once we have the knowledge, then we have the responsibility and the opportunity and the power with which to act upon that knowledge. God doesn't want to just fill our minds with knowledge. He wants to transform us by the renewing of our minds so that when information comes in, it begins to transform us. And as it comes in, it wants to go back out so that it can do its work. And here's the thing about unity, though. Unity is not uniformity. I'm not saying that we all have to begin to dress alike and talk alike and like the same music and like the same movies and not go these places and not do those things. Unity is not about what we don't do. Right? Unity is about what we do in Christ and who we are in Christ and what he's done. There are a lot of people throughout history that have tried to preach a message about the gospel and about Jesus, and they've unfortunately, with good intentions, relegated it to our out- outward lives, what we do and what we don't do. We don't drink, smoke, or chew, or run with girls that do. Right? We... <laughs> We don't go these places, and we don't do these things, and we don't wear those clothes. Now, while all those things, there is a level of good there. We need to maintain a moral high ground. We need to have boundaries. We need to realize that some things are just not beneficial and are not good for us to do and are flat-out wrong. I'm not speaking against that. But what I am speaking against is that when we take what Jesus is talking about here and make it external only, and don't allow the Word to do its penetrating work, which is internal, Something cannot transform me from the outside. It has to come on the inside and produce the transformation. Again, back to the scripture I just shared. To be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Where's your mind? It's inside your being. It's not outside your being. So being in unity has far less to do with what we don't do. And the focus should be on what we are doing. It's easy to talk about what I don't do. Well, I don't do this and I don't do that and I don't do this. That's easy. There's really no responsibility there. Our focus needs to be more on what are we doing for the kingdom of God? What are we doing with what God has given us? What are we, what's our focus? What's our purpose? What's our mission? And while all the things we don't do are good, don't let that become our trophies. Let's not have trophy cases full of all the things we didn't do. Nobody gets a trophy for not doing something. Right? Nobody, the guy who did not play on the team does not get a non-participating trophy. You only get a trophy, so to speak, for when, you, when you're part of the team, when you participate. And the church and this life of Christianity, this life of Christ that we have, that God's called us to live, is a life of participation, not being a spectator. God called us to be participants and gave us everything we need to participate in that. And now here's where the big responsibility comes in is this is that unity, the type of unity that Jesus is praying for here, his prayer directly affects our ability to accomplish the Great Commission. It impacts eternity. 
We cannot effectively preach the gospel if we are disunified. Why? Because he said, I pray that they be in unity so that the world may know and believe, God, that you sent me and that they love, you love them as much as you love me. It affects our ability to reach people. It affects the eternity of individuals who do not know Jesus. Life is too short. The stakes are too great. And God's calling is too powerful on our lives to get hung up on things that will not make an eternal difference. Things that will not amount to a hill of beans in eternity. We cannot allow ourselves to be focused on that. We cannot get stuck in the weeds. Because when we get stuck in the weeds, we become so, we become so disunified. Because we're talking about things that don't really matter. The things that really matter are people. And it's the people that God wants to reach through his son, Jesus Christ. Remember, for God so loved the world that he gave. God did not say, for God so loved the church. He said, for God so loved the world. The church would follow that because the church is you and me. It's not a building. It's those of us who have come to believe. You know, in the body of Christ today, unfortunately, I would say there is a lot of disunity. There's unity, but there's a lot of disunity. We argue and we bicker over things that don't really matter. Some would say, well, you're, I'm full gospel, well, I'm this, and I'm that, and you're only 75% gospel, and you don't believe this, and I don't believe that, and we're better because we're up here, and you're over there, and it's ridiculous. Now, there are some people out there who believe crazy stuff, and we need to be aware of that. But what good is it if we sit and posture and compare ourselves with other Christians? Amen. That makes no sense. That is disunity. God is not impressed with our denominations and our labels and our affiliations. There's only one affiliation that God has ever been impressed with or will ever be impressed with, and that's being affiliated with His Son, Jesus Christ. And that's what we need to focus on. Tell the truth in love. Realize that there's going to be some disagreements. We can still be in unity and not agree 100%. Why? Because it's the unity that comes from God not from ourselves. And I believe that though we have to fight to maintain that. I mean, what do we have to fight? Our emotions, our opinions, our influences. And we have to come to this understanding of, okay, what's the main thing? I want to keep the main thing the main thing. The main thing is this. It's about Jesus. And it's about reaching people who don't know who Jesus is. That they come to an understanding of who he is and what he's done. That he becomes the Lord of their life. First, he becomes the Savior, and then he becomes Lord of their life and helping move people from where they are to where God wants them to be. Everything that we've talked about for the past two weeks of what we need to do and what we need to know are important in their own right, but without unity, without that linchpin holding the the wheels of what we've been talking about on the axle, it's not going to matter because we have to be unified. I want the, the band to return. We have to make a decision as a collective body of believers to say, you know what? We will stand in unity. We will stand together. In World War II, a group of countries stood up who had differences, who didn't agree on everything, who had different ideologies, different ways of looking at the world. And they said, you know what? For this moment in time, we're going to lay our differences aside because there is an enemy. And there was a threat to take over the world and and make it something that it should never intend to be. And we're going to lay those aside. We're going to be a unified front because we will not stand for what they are trying to do. I believe as the church, we need to come together and say, you know what? Let's set our small differences aside. Things that don't make a difference in eternity. 
Let's set those things aside. Let's have our small disagreements and work them out like adults. And let's keep the main thing the main thing and realize the threat of the enemy to destroy lives and take people's eternities away from them and not spend them with the Father. That needs to be the main thing. And we will stand against that threat of the enemy. That we will choose to be an allied force of believers. And you say, well, Joshua, how do we do that with the church across the street and the church over there? That'll happen in time. But you know where we need to start? Right here. I don't believe that there is a lot of disunity in this body. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that the level of unity, excuse me, that Jesus prayed for here has yet to be seen in the world. And I think that we begin to make that happen by choosing to be unified in this church. Because when we become unified in this church, we're making a contribution. We can't look at the problem as a whole and say, man, that's really big. What are we going to do? No matter what we do, it's not going to amount to anything. We can look at it that way. Or we can look at it like this. So you know what? Although we can't do everything, we can do something. Although we can't help everyone, we can help someone. And we we can begin to play our part because the church, the family of God, is global. Because again, the church is people. It's you and it's me. It's not this building. It's not a place. It's not a thing we do. It's a living, breathing organism comprised of individuals who come together, united by Christ, with Christ to accomplish God's purpose and God's mission. Being in unity affects our individual and corporate spiritual growth. As you make a decision in your heart to say, you know what, I'm going to be a person of unity. I want the type of unity that Jesus prayed for. I want to be one with others as Jesus is one with the Father. As you make that decision on an individual basis and your life begins to pattern itself after that decision and after the things that you do, Imagine if we all do that as individuals. You know what's going to happen? As we come together as individuals in a corporate setting like this and we begin to be the church, we're going to be in unity, right? It's easy to say in a service, yay, we will be in unity. But it has to start on the individual level. And as we grow as individuals, we will grow as a collective unit together. It'll happen. But it's got to be that personal decision to say, you know what? I want to be in unity. Why? Number one, because Jesus prayed for it. And whatever Jesus prays is going to happen because he's God and he's the word of God and God's word will be accomplished one way or the other. Whether we choose to participate it or not, it's going to happen. I'd just rather jump on the wagon and be a participant rather than a spectator and say, God, I just, I just want to get in the flow of what you're doing. I just want to, I want to be unified with you because whatever you're doing is far more blessed and far more efficient than whatever I'm doing. I've been thinking a lot about preaching and, you know, what series are we going to do? And I said, I want to be a month ahead of knowing where I'm going to preach. And I've got a lot of ideas of what I want to say. And it finally came down to this point. I said, God, you know what? There's a lot that I want to say, but I need to stop and say, what do you want to say? What do you want to speak to us at this time in our history as a church? Because God, what you want to say is far more profound than what I want to say. And I believe that God does have words for us. Sometimes I don't know what those words are till Thursday or whatever they may be. And, I, you know, I don't know. I, I'm just trying to take this one day at a time and say, God, what, what do you want us to know? I mean, your word is big, you know, it's vast. What do you want us to know? And I feel like he wants us, I want you to be in unity. I want you to come together through what my son, Jesus Christ, has done. And then I want you to go reach your city, your country, and your world. I want you to love people. I want you not to be so focused on methodology. It have its place. But be focused on me. Be focused on Jesus. Look up. You know when Jesus uh, fed the 5,000 
the disciples came to him and said, Jesus, the people are hungry. You want to dismiss them? What do you want to do? And Jesus said, well, why don't you feed them? And they said, well, what do you want us to feed them? We don't, we don't have anything. Should we go buy food? We don't, we don't have enough money for that. And this little boy, five loaves, two fish, comes up, and they give it to Jesus. And Jesus holds it in his hands. But if you read the Bible, he says something very significant when he prays. It says that he prayed, and what did he do when he prayed? He looked up. He didn't look at what was in his hands. It was only five loaves and two fish. For had he focused on what was in front of him, he would have not seen the possibilities of what God can do. So what I'm saying today is there's a lot of problems in front of us, a lot of issues that we face in the world currently. We've been watching the news this week. It's, it's heating up around the world, so to speak. But don't look at what's in your hand. Pray about what's in your hand, but look up and ask the Father. I think when we start looking up, we'll be in unity because we'll be focused on him, not focused on ourselves, not focused on the temporary. I want you guys to stand. We're going to sing a song. Uh, I'm going to change it up on you. I told her like three different things this week. I just really felt when we were singing earlier about I'm a friend of God that there was just a real freedom in this place. It's just making a declaration. You know what? I am a friend of God. And it's true. It's scriptural. It's not something we're made up. You know, we are friends of God and we need to proclaim that. I just want us, I want us to sing that song again. We're going to go out of here on a a rocking note saying that we're declaring we're we're friends of God regardless of what's going on in our life. And I want you to make that a declaration. You know what? I'm a friend of God. As we all begin to view ourselves as friends of God, it's going to bring us together closer in unity. And after that, I'm going to come up and uh, I'm going to pray for you. And we're going to dismiss and have a great week. So let's, let's sing that song and have a good time.